see your faces and to once again turn with you to the book of Acts. Before we do, though, as I was reading through the book of Acts in order to preach the whole book to you this, this afternoon, uh, I thought about the great leaders in this world. People, let's say, maybe like Martin Luther King Jr., or maybe even Gandhi, or Chairman Mao. I'm not necessarily saying that they're all good leaders, I'm just saying great leaders, influential leaders. What happens when those leaders die? Well, their followers, their advocates, began to try to keep their memory alive. They tried to take their ideas and propagate them. And oftentimes they did that through things like books. They would put up monuments. They might gather together in clubs and associations and try to continue spreading the teaching of that particular leader. But in the end, all those leaders are dead. They're in the ground. But Jesus is different. Jesus lived a sinless life. And then he died on the cross, was buried, and surprisingly was raised from the dead by the power of God. And over the course of 40 days, he appeared to his disciples, teaching them many things from the scriptures, giving evidence to them that he was in fact alive. Jesus is different. Jesus himself is alive even now. And the story of the book of Acts is the story of what Jesus is continuing to do in the world himself. Not just his followers, but Jesus himself. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts. We're going to be, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read first from Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to read from Acts chapter 28, the last chapter in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, could you raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like for you to have one. Um, does anyone, oh, we need a Bible up here. That'd be great. Thank you, Katrina. And a Bible right here. Great. Thanks for raising your hand. Appreciate it. This is our gift to you. We want you to have this Bible. Keep it from now on. Turn to uh, the book of Acts, which is closer to the end of your Bible. And it's after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts comes. And we're in the first chapter. That's the big, bold numbers are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verses. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. Follow along with me. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now turn with me to the end of the book of Acts, the very last chapter, which is chapter 28. And we're going to read from verse 23 to verse 31. Acts 28, verse 23 to 31. When they had appointed a day for him, that is Paul, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers, greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight? O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, after Jesus was raised from the dead and then ascended to heaven before their eyes, what were the disciples expecting? They knew that Jesus was alive. They knew that Jesus had power. What was going to be Jesus' encore? Surely they expected something amazing to happen. Would it be maybe overthrow of the Roman Empire? Maybe it would be a restoration of the age-old promises of God about restoring the glory and the boundaries of the nation of Israel so that they could live for Yahweh? Well, I think as we read in the first chapter of Acts, we see that they were thinking just that thing. They were thinking about the restoration of Israel, but they were thinking too small. You see, Jesus had not just Israel-wide plans, Jesus had worldwide plans. They were hoping for a military revolution within the boundaries of Israel, but Jesus was intending for a spiritual revolution that would spread across the entire world. A spiritual revolution that would end with Jesus destroying all sin, all death, and with everyone on the face of the earth who had trusted in him living for his glory. All the effects of sin and death in the world destroyed and removed in the world. The thinking of the disciples was far, far too small. And the beginning of Acts is the beginning of Jesus putting into play this very revolution. When we look at the book of Acts and we try to think about how it's put together, one of the most key verses is chapter 1, verse 8. Look there in chapter 1, verse 8 with me. In verse, chapter 1, verse 8, I'll read it to you again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When we think about this verse 8, 
And then we skim through or read through the entire book of Acts, we can see that this verse acts like a table of contents for the rest of the book of Acts. And it says and teaches about how these disciples are going to first receive the Holy Spirit. They're going to be witnesses to Jesus and to his kingdom, first in Jerusalem, then spreading outward into Judea, and then into Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. And that's exactly how the book of Acts unfolds. In chapters 1 and 2, the Spirit falls on all the disciples and all who had gathered in that upper room that Jesus had told to be there. There were 120 of them in total. But on that day, 3,000 were added to their number. And then we see through chapter 7, so 1 through 7, we see the gospel ringing out in Jerusalem and in Judea, the surrounding towns and villages around Jerusalem. By the time we get to chapter 8 through 12, we begin to see God, through the Holy Spirit, causing the disciples, through persecution no doubt, to be pressed out into Samaria. Samaria, which was the land of corrupted Judaism. The land where years and years, hundreds of years ago, Jeroboam had set up golden calves for Israelites to worship. That's what the Samaritans were, corrupted Jews. And then we see, after chapter 12, from 13 until 28, we see the gospel going to the ends of the earth. That's how the table of contents works there in that key verse, chapter 1, verse 8. But the question for us is, what is the entire message of the book of Acts? What is the message for us? I think a short and brief message of Acts is this. Proclaim Christ's kingdom by the power of the Spirit for all people. Proclaim Christ's kingdom by the power of the Spirit for all people. That's the message for us today. So first we'll consider that first phrase in the message for us, proclaim Christ's kingdom, or the kingdom of God. It's interesting that phrase, kingdom of God, is not used very many times in the book of Acts. It is used quite a, quite a few times in the book of Luke, which is, uh, Luke, the same author who authored Acts. That's his first volume. It's about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he mentions the kingdom of God many, many times in that book. But in the book of Acts, we only have the kingdom of God mentioned eight times. But the places where the kingdom of God is mentioned are very, very important. It's mentioned at the beginning, primarily, and at the very end. In fact, in those two passages that I read out of the book of Acts, when we began, mention the kingdom of God. When, when you think about uh, a book in the Bible, and you see something distinctive mentioned at the very beginning and at the very end, you should take note. The author wants you to know that this is an important concept. Something he wants to clearly communicate to you. It's like if you went to a bookstore and you picked up a book and you wanted to know what is that book about. Rather than flip through the inside of the book, you looked at the front cover and you looked at the back. And you read to see what is this book about. Well, it works the same way when we see things at the very beginning of a book and the very end of a book. And we see that with this mention of the kingdom of God. And we talked about the kingdom of God last week. Because we covered chapter 28, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. It's the rule and the reign of God. The kingdom of God has no geographical boundaries, even though God's rule and reign stretches to everywhere in the entire universe. But just because the kingdom of God is present and available everywhere, it doesn't mean that everyone is in the kingdom of God. In fact, the scriptures teach us that the kingdom of God has to be 
recognized, entered into, and then lived under. It has to be recognized, entered into, and lived under. The way that the kingdom of God was preached here in the book of Acts, we can see is by the preaching of Jesus Christ. At the very end of the book, uh, Paul it mentions that Paul is there in Rome, and he tried to convince them, expounding from the law of Moses and the prophets, about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. So the way that the kingdom of God is announced and pointed to by those who know him, who know God, is to point to the king. To point to the king and what he's done to make entrance into the kingdom available. And so Peter, who is the primary proclaimer of the gospel in chapters 1 through 12, as well as Paul, who's the primary proclaimer of the gospel in chapters 13 through 28, both of those men, Peter and Paul, the way that they proclaim the kingdom of God is they proclaim Jesus Christ and what he did. Oftentimes, when it's referring to the proclamation of Christ's kingdom through the book of Acts, it's mentioned in shorthand. And so sometimes it's spoken of as the word of God. You would say that the disciples spread the word of God. Or it might speak of it as the word of the Lord. Sometimes it's just simply referred to as the word. The word multiplied. And then of course, a word that you're all probably even more familiar with is the gospel. The gospel is used in the book of Acts as well. When Peter and Paul proclaimed the gospel or Christ's kingdom, they were proclaiming Christ. They were proclaiming that Christ had come to earth, that he was fully God and fully man, that he had been appointed by the Father to be the Messiah or the Anointed One. He had come to rescue his people, but he had been cruelly executed on a Roman cross. That was according to God's plan, no doubt. They emphasized that. But it had been done by wicked men. And when Peter is proclaiming this in Jerusalem and in Judea, he actually points out to the Jews that they were the ones who had crucified Christ. That they were guilty. But even though they had done this, because it was according to God's definite foreknowledge and plan, God had raised him from the dead. Jesus had told the disciples himself that this is what would happen to him. That he would be crucified, but raised from the dead after the third day. And this Jesus then would be the one whose death would provide the entrance into the kingdom of God. And the way that he did this is that his death on the cross was the payment for the penalty of sins for anyone who repents and trusts in him. That's the good news. That Jesus, crucifixion and resurrection, if someone were to repent of their rebellion against God and put their trust in King Jesus, they too could gain entrance into the kingdom of God. They could become citizens. Citizens in this invisible kingdom. Peter, when he preached Christ, we can see it in the second chapter on the day of Pentecost, in chapter 2, verse 38. He says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter was preaching Christ when he preached Christ's kingdom. The same is true for Paul. Just one example, if you turn to chapter 13 in your Bibles. This is during Paul's first missionary journey, and he's in the city of Antioch in Syria. 
And he's gathered Jews at the local synagogue, which was his practice. That's what he always did at the beginning of any kind of ministry in the city. And in verse 38, this is how he begins to conclude his message. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. Peter and Paul and every other Christian, when they proclaimed the Christ's kingdom, they proclaimed the good news of what Jesus had done in his death and resurrection. That he had made the forgiveness of sins available. And that through the forgiveness of sins, people entered into this kingdom. That is the same gospel, the same word of the Lord, the same word of God that we proclaim as well, brothers and sisters. That is at the heart of our faith. If you're a true Christian, not just a Christian in name only, but if you're a true Christian, it's because of the gospel. Because you heard the gospel at some point in time. And you repented of your sins, and you trusted in Christ. And you began to live under Christ's rule, under King Jesus' lordship of your life. Is that true of you? If you've heard this gospel message before, have you not just assumed that you're a Christian, but rather have you repented of your sins, and submitted yourself to the rule of King Jesus? That's what it means to become a Christian. Otherwise, you're not. But that's not the end of it. The gospel is not just for becoming a Christian. The gospel is for living as a Christian as well. We submit our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. We begin to align all of our choices and our values in life with those of our King. It changes. Sometimes the way we spend our free time. Sometimes how we do our work and our jobs. Oftentimes how we relate to friends or our spouse are radically altered because of following King Jesus. The message of the gospel is also at the heart of who we are as a church. Followers of Jesus united together in order to help one another follow Jesus while we live in this place. If you look at our statement of faith as a church, which is posted on our website, it's listed in our church directory as well, and that statement of faith basically explains and focuses primarily on what is required to enter the kingdom of God. What it means to be redeemed. What it means to be saved. In addition to that, you probably noticed that at every Friday gathering, when we preach from the scriptures, the effort is made by whoever is up here preaching, whether it's myself or Pastor Michael or Pastor Mark or one of the other elders of our church, the effort is made to connect whatever passage we're looking at in the Bible to the gospel. How does it relate to the gospel? Because Jesus tells us that all the scriptures are about himself and what he came to do. That's one way that the gospel is important to us as a church. It's central. It is our life. And it continues to guide us as we live for Jesus in this world. The thing about it is, though, that we cannot live as followers of Christ and proclaim Christ's kingdom all on our own. How could we do that? Of course, we take a look at the disciples. They had spent years with Jesus, and yet when crunch time came and Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. It wasn't until Jesus gathered them after his resurrection and was ascended on high that he promised them 
that the Holy Spirit would come and fill them with power. That's what we need as well. The power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ's kingdom. That's the second point this afternoon. We proclaim Christ's kingdom by the power of the Spirit. We see that all throughout the book of Acts, of course. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God, one of the persons of the Trinity. I'm going to be preaching a sermon series on the Trinity beginning next Friday. So we'll start with God the Father, we'll move to God the Son, and in the third week we'll come to God the Spirit. So we'll learn lots more about God the Holy Spirit there. But when we look in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit was always at work in the world. The day of Pentecost was not the day when the Holy Spirit initially showed up at work in the world. No, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was at work there too. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit was primarily at work through the leaders of Israel and the prophets. Primarily at work through them, though not exclusively. And then when we move into the New Testament, of course, we see Jesus in his ministry at his baptism. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and for the rest of his ministry, he's operating in the power of the Spirit. But the disciples didn't have the Spirit at that point in time. It wasn't until Acts, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came with power on all the believers. Acts chapter 2, in fact, marks an incredible shift in history. It is the time when the age of the Spirit began. The age of the Spirit is beginning in Acts chapter 2. This was what God the Father and God the Son had promised that they both would send the Spirit upon believers to empower them to live for Christ Jesus. One of the things that we see in the book of Acts is that the Spirit is the mark of a true Christian. Someone who is a true Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Non-Christians do not have the Holy Spirit. We see that, of course, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit falls upon the, the disciples who are in the upper room and they pour out onto the street. They begin proclaiming the marvelous works of God in languages that they didn't know the day before, but were empowered to know because of the Spirit. And because the city of Jerusalem was filled with Jews and proselytes from all around the Mediterranean world, they were hearing the mighty works of God spoken in their own languages. And so, of course, they many of them turned and trusted in Christ that day. 3,000. And all who repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus received the Holy Spirit. One of the ways that we see the marks of a true Christian evidenced here in the pages of Acts is how when God the Holy Spirit began to force the disciples out from Jerusalem and Judea into places like Samaria to share the gospel... Even though the Samaritans believed the gospel at the preaching of Philip, we see that in chapter 8 in Acts, it was important and necessary that Peter and John, apostles, travel down to Samaria and pray for the Samaritans to receive the Spirit. It happened after they believed. In doing that, God was demonstrating that he was reuniting divided Israel. You see, in Israel's history, because of their great sin, God had split the kingdom in two, into a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And what became of the northern kingdom was, of course, where the Samaritans lived and the religion that the Samaritans followed. But when those apostles went to Samaria and prayed that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic 
of divided Israel becoming united again. And the same thing happened when Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus. And he found a group of men who had, were believing in the baptism of John the Baptist, but they had not heard about Jesus or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, the apostle, prayed for them to receive the Spirit. And they did. The mark of a true Christian is that they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. One important question for you to ask is, do I have the Holy Spirit in me? Do I have the Holy Spirit in me? Now, I don't want to cause undue worry on your part, but it is an important question for you to ask. Three ways that you can ask yourself questions to know if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. One is, are you convicted of your sin? Which causes you to turn to God in repentance. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. What a gracious act that the Holy Spirit does in us. And of course, that's what we see the Holy Spirit doing in all kinds of people's lives throughout the pages of the book of Acts. Conviction of sin. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gives us an internal assurance of the love of Christ for us. An internal assurance of the love of Christ. If you understand the gospel, if the Holy Spirit has given you spiritual understanding of this message of salvation, then you know that Jesus died that you might repent and believe in him, that you might know him and love him and be loved by him. The Holy Spirit assures us of the love of Christ. And thirdly, in addition to that, the Holy Spirit brings about changes in our character. Ask yourself, if I believe I'm a Christian, since the time when I think I became a Christian, whether I know the day or maybe just the season of life, have there been marked changes in my life? Have there been changes in affections? Have there been changes in the way I speak and how I go about my life, how I relate to other people? more and more in line with the scriptures and with Jesus, your king. If you see those changes, oh, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Christ is at work in you. He's not done. He's going to keep working in you until either he comes back or he takes you home to himself. But be encouraged. The mark of a true Christian is to have the Holy Spirit. Another thing that we see in these pages of Acts is that the Holy Spirit gives boldness to believers. The Holy Spirit gives boldness to proclaim Christ's kingdom. Think about the disciples. They were a fearful bunch. Denying Jesus just like Peter on the night of his arrest. Running and hiding wondering if they would be the next ones to be arrested and crucified, perhaps. They were anything but bold. But once the Holy Spirit came and filled them, oh, were they bold. They were fearless. And it was the Spirit's work in them doing it. So, for example, think about Peter and John before the council, the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 of Acts. It says that when the council saw their boldness, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Of course, what they were recognizing was not just that they had been with Jesus, but Jesus through the Holy Spirit was in them. Paul preaches with boldness when he's turned from being a Christian persecutor to a Christian proclaimer. All throughout the book, we see the boldness of those who are filled with the Spirit. Christians even pray for boldness in the face of persecution. Without the Holy Spirit, we will not be bold either. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus, we need to pray and ask the Lord to fill us afresh with the Spirit. 
It's only the Spirit that is going to give us the boldness. We can't just screw up our courage all by ourselves. We need God's help. We need God to be at work in us. A phrase that's mentioned in the scriptures, particularly there in these chapters when God was doing his work, particularly in Jerusalem, was in chapter 4, after Peter and John had spoken before the council, and they had been told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, of course the believers gathered together to pray. And they prayed to the Lord and asked him, to give this, them boldness. It says in chapter 431, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What was happening there? It says they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, these are believers. They had the Holy Spirit before they prayed. What is it talking about when it says filled with the Holy Spirit? To be filled with the Holy Spirit for a believer means to be more fully yielded to the Holy Spirit. To be more fully given over to the leadership of the Spirit in our lives. More submitted to King Jesus. That's what it means. In addition to giving us boldness, brothers and sisters, and I encourage you to pray for boldness if you see that you're not bold, is that the Spirit leads us to take the gospel farther. The Spirit leads us to take the gospel farther. We see that in the pages of the book of Acts. And every time that the gospel goes beyond a certain boundary, it's the Spirit working in a unique way. And so we see that in chapters 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit. Actually, if you just do a word count, you can see Holy Spirit is mentioned frequently in chapters 1 and 2. The Spirit was falling on them for the first time, and they began to spread the gospel throughout the city of Jerusalem and then in Judea. And then there's less mention of the Holy Spirit in those latter chapters from 1 to 7. But then in 8, the Spirit begins to be mentioned again powerfully because through persecution, the Spirit is moving believers out into Samaria to share the gospel. New people are becoming Christians. New kinds of people, in fact. And then when we get to the missionary journeys of Paul, beginning in chapter 13, again, we see the Holy Spirit mentioned frequently again. And at each of his three missionary journeys, at the very beginning, the Spirit is mentioned frequently. The Spirit helps us to take the gospel farther. Oh, brothers and sisters, Pray, pray that the Spirit would lead us into new places to proclaim Christ's kingdom. Now right now, as we're gathering here, Carson and Kanoa Merkel, who are a church planting resident, Carson is a church planting resident in our church, is in Beirut, Lebanon. And he's exploring, uh, possibly moving to Lebanon to... Uh, help out a church called City Bible Church, led by a pastor named Marwan Abuzelov. God willing, the Lord is going to move Carson and Kanoa out of our church at some point in time, whether sooner or later, to go and proclaim Christ's kingdom in another place. Be praying for them as they're away over the next two weeks. Some of you may remember one of the founding elders of Covenant Hope Church was a man named David Lawrence. David Lawrence is currently the pastor of Erbil Baptist Church in Erbil, Iraq. The Lord moved David out by the power of the Spirit. But it's not just people specially set apart to be pastors that we see the Spirit moving out to share the gospel in new locations, but it's ordinary members. Ordinary members of the church, perhaps members who leave from this place, maybe the Lord takes them back because they've lost their job here or they need to return to their family members in their home country. But God willing, while they're here, they've grown in the gospel, they've become more mature in Christ, 
They have a greater taste for what a healthy church is like. And when they go to those places, they'll be a greater gospel influence. They're more able to proclaim Christ's kingdom in the context of a local church in those places. Oftentimes where there are very much fewer gospel-centered churches. Let's pray that the Lord would do that. He would move our members out through difficulty or through our own choices to go to other places and proclaim Christ's kingdom. It's something that the Holy Spirit does as he works in us. But it's not just other countries that I think the Holy Spirit wants to move us out to. It's the city of Dubai. Dubai has three million people in it. And there are many sectors and areas, population centers of this city where there is no gospel proclamation. Oh, friends, this city needs the Lord Jesus and the gospel that he came to proclaim. I pray that the Lord would use us here in this city. You know, I don't care anything like me. I drive through Dubai sometimes and I think about the different pockets of Dubai, whether it's geography or whether it's a population center or a particular demographic of the city. And I think about how few people there in that place or in that group know the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. I think about the Emiratis and how few Emiratis in my 19 years of living here in Dubai that I know of that have come to Christ. I lament that. Well, I long for more Emiratis to come to know Jesus. I think about this city and places and population centers in the city, like, for example, the many pimps and prostitutes that work in this city. You and I know they work here in this place. Who's going to share the gospel with them? The labor camps. Who's going to share the gospel in the labor camps? Well, sometimes when I think about these groups of people in these places in the city, I, I get despondent. I get discouraged. But when I read the book of Acts, I think, maybe it's us. Maybe we're to play a part in the Lord Jesus reaching this city and causing revival to come in bringing in a great harvest of people. Would the Lord use us in that way if we prayed to him? Oh, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do that in us. And I pray that he'd do it perhaps even one day through church planting. We want to church plant churches from our church as well. That's one way that the Lord can move us out. Pray for these things, brothers and sisters. When I think about the Holy Spirit empowering these disciples to proclaim Christ's kingdom. I think about all the people that they're to preach to. All the people that they're to proclaim to. They are to proclaim to every kind of person on the planet. You know, these verses from Psalm 67 earlier uh, really struck me. This is God's heart. And this was a part of God's plan all along. Chapter 67 in Psalms say, May the Lord be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This is God's heart from the very beginning. That it wouldn't just be the Jews who would have a saving knowledge of God, but that all the nations would. And so that's another theme that we see in the book of Acts. We preach Christ's kingdom in the power of the Spirit for all people. For all people. Now this desire to preach the gospel to all people wasn't obvious to the disciples at first, it wasn't obvious that the gospel was for everyone. And yet, if they were to have looked back in their scriptures and read them with an open mind and a mind guided by the Holy Spirit, they would have seen even all the way back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. 
that God had given a promise to Abram that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That was God's original plan. And it continued to be his plan all along, despite the blindness of his people, Israel. And so we see it then littered throughout the wisdom literature and then the prophets as well, that the nations were to have the good news preached to them. We see that turning point for the disciples as well in chapter 10. Chapter 10 of Acts, when Peter, the Apostle Peter, was led by the Holy Spirit, forced by the Holy Spirit, literally, to go and proclaim the good news to the Roman centurion Cornelius. A Roman centurion. A Roman centurion represented the nations. He was as far from the people of God as they could imagine. And when Cornelius and his whole family received the Holy Spirit, oh, did it blow away the disciples. They were so surprised. God was not just restoring Israel. That's what they had asked Jesus about in the first chapter of Acts. God was, in fact, reconfiguring Israel. His restoration project was not just to reestablish the boundaries of the nation of Israel. It was to spread Israel out and bring all the nations of the earth in. And so we see the beginning of that in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. Then in 11, the Jews, the Christians, the Jewish Jews who had turned to Christ in Jerusalem recognized with Peter, what God was doing. And by 12, we see already the establishment of a church in Antioch, just north of Jerusalem, that had both converted Jews and Gentiles in it. And that sets the stage, of course, for the last chapter, so to speak, in the book of Acts, chapter 13 through 28. Paul then, of course, became the apostle to the Gentiles. Every time he entered into a city, he preached the gospel first to the Jews in the synagogue. Some would believe. Many would reject it. And then he would turn and begin preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And throughout those chapters of 13 through particularly 20, we see all kinds of people from different walks of life and different demographics come to Christ. We see a slave girl who initially is controlled by an evil spirit. We see a very rich female businesswoman come to Christ. We see a jailer come to Christ. We see Paul share the gospel with the native people of the island of Malta. We see Paul stand before governors and corrupted kings sharing the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is truly for all people. Are there any people that you think the gospel can't work on? You know, sometimes I look around and I have doubts about whether or not the gospel could save certain people. Perhaps it's just because I've seen them be stubborn and not respond to the gospel message over a period of time. And my faith in the gospel begins to wane. Brothers and sisters, the message of the book of Acts is that God can save anyone. That we must have faith in the power of the gospel to save all people, and we need to share it with all kinds of people. I want to encourage you to do one thing this afternoon. I want you to write down the names of three people. Three people that you can begin to pray for. Make sure that at least two of those people are people that you have regular, at least weekly contact with in your life, people that you are not believers in the Lord Jesus, and people that you perhaps are beginning to doubt that the Lord could save them. And I want you to pray for those people. Pray that the Lord would put others in their lives who know the Lord Jesus and would be filled with the Spirit and bold enough to share the gospel with them. Pray that the Lord would give you opportunities to do that. 
Pray that he would show you how to start a spiritual conversation with them. To ask them if they've ever considered the message of the Bible. Would they read it with you? Time and time again, when I've actually focused on praying for particular people, I've seen them over. And I pray that that would happen for many of you. At the end of the book of Luke, in chapter 24, turn with me there for just a moment. Luke is telling us what happened after Jesus had been raised from the dead and he was appearing to his disciples. And if we look at two of the almost very last verses in Luke chapter 24, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says this. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That verse right there is a perfect summary of the Gospel of Luke. That it was written in the Old Testament that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then we see verse 47, and what was written, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That is a perfect summary of the book of Acts. And that, brothers and sisters, was what God began to do in the first pages of the book of Acts and what he is continuing to do to this very day. We live in the age of the Spirit. And God is bringing in a harvest. God is working. The Lord Jesus is working in the world through the Holy Spirit, working in his people like us to proclaim Christ's kingdom in his power to all people. All those other leaders, Martin Luther King Jr., Chairman Mao, Gandhi, they're dead. But the Lord Jesus is alive. And he has sent the Spirit to work in and through us. What a gift that we get to participate in God's end-time restoration of Israel, the coming of the kingdom of the Lord.